Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Hey, everybody, this is Shane Claiborne, and the show is Across the Pond. I'm over here in the United States uh, recording it. That's why we call it Across the Pond, and we are so glad that you could join us. I am really excited about our conversation today. Uh, I've got a friend of mine that is joining us, Chris Hall, one of my best buddies. He's also um, done all kinds of stuff. We wrote Jesus for President together. He helped start a community across the river from us at The Simple Way. He started a community in Camden, New Jersey. But uh First of all, welcome, Chris. Good to see you, buddy. It's great to be here, Shane. Good to see you. Dr. Chris Ha now, teaching <laughs> at the University of Scranton. Uh, but we met, I think it's probably helpful for people to have a little backdrop, uh, especially folks that might not be real familiar with your work, though I hope by the end of this, you're going to really want to keep checking out Chris's stuff. I think he's one of the most important theologians uh, in our generation. And I, I mean, I am a little biased because he's my buddy. But uh, yeah, we, you and I met <laughs> back in the 1900s. Hallelujah. When you were at Willow Creek, you grew up in in, in uh, that area outside Chicago. And I was out there as an intern at the uh, mega church of Willow Creek, which interestingly enough, if y'all don't know Willow Creek, it started as really a youth group, a youth movement with Bill Hybels and wasn't it called Sun City or something like that? And so part of what drew me to it was that youthful vision, you know, a love for the early church and it grew in all kinds of ways, you know, and, and has had all kinds of struggles recently. But we, we, we met each other there. And I think, you know, folks hearing a little bit of your backdrop growing up uh, gives a little context for the conversation we're having today, bro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was raised very much um, in a sort of hybrid between some early Catholicism, but then that sort of megachurch evangelicalism, and um, I've been on a hybrid journey ever since. Yeah, so so you um, kind of started your, you know, you, you still have a love for Jesus, you have this like uh, evangelical backdrop, but you've branched out and some of that happened in Camden, right? Like, so I think help, helping people kind of see a lot of folks don't go from evangelical mega church to Catholic. A lot of people might go the opposite. <laughs> you know? but, right. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that though. Well, following the September 11th attacks, I began to encounter much more of the underbelly of evangelicalism and how actually very much of Christianity from both the Civil War age all the way down to our own has been wedded with all sorts of militarism and slaveholding. And I began to see that a lot of the seeming sincerity and love for Jesus that I had encountered in evangelicalism sort of had a dark side. Mm -hmm. And um, I basically regarded that all of the church had this corruption and uh, susceptibility to desiring power over desiring Jesus. And so I, in fact, sort of detached myself from almost any 
denominational interests and in fact wanted to just simply follow some of the advice you took from Mother Teresa, which is we just need to go and find our own Calcuttas in the world. And so for me, um, I had no interest in being part of a relevant or cool or smoke machine type church that uh, I had experienced playing on the stage at Willow Creek, but instead just wanted to move into the sort of decaying parts of our world, uh, not needing the hype of um, you know emergent churches or whatever. And for me, that just involved running into uh, a Catholic church that was in the middle of Camden, New Jersey, a very rundown neighborhood, a very polluted, poor neighborhood, and not for any love for the Catholic church, but simply just wanting to participate in their work of, of running an inner city school and trying to build a better community down there. But as I was there, I came to fall in love with Catholicism when doing that liturgy and those prayers against the backdrop of a apocalyptic rust belt uh, that we've experienced here in the U.S. Yeah. And you, you, in your first book from the first book Chris wrote, uh, it was from Willow Creek to Sacred Heart. And it talks about this journey. We, we've had Chris on before, so we're not, we're, we're going to break new ground today and talk about Rene Girard in just a minute. But I, I love the analogy that you give as you're kind of making that transition, Chris. And you, you talk about how, you know, in the 1990s, there was so much movement happening around the emergent church, as you, you know, um, you mentioned a lot of little communities that have started, that started. Ours was one of those. Uh, uh, and some of them are still around. Some of them died out. And I think part of why some of them died is they didn't have those roots, you know, kind of like the Jesus movement. It was kind of a movement outside the church, uh, the larger institutional structures and stuff. And there, there's something to be said for realizing that God works inside and outside of the those structures. And I think some people have too heavy a foot inside and some people have too heavy a foot outside that, that delicate dance. Um, But you describe it, you know, you said some folks have have, have kind of pioneered this uh, like, like a a kayak going down a wild raging river. uh, But you saw yourself more on a rowboat um, where you turn backwards in order to go forward. So you have to look back as you move forward. And I think that's a really great analogy. You also talk about, that, you know, people would say, why would you move into Camden? It was, you know, rated the worst neighborhood to live in in, in America. And you said, well, um, we believe in resurrection, right? <laughs> like we, we, I mean, you get an abandoned house because you want to bring it to life, uh, back to life. And that's what, you know, St. Francis, Dorothy Day, I think so many movements have done in the Catholic Church is you realize like um, there, there, there is there is a a whole idea of restoration of the church. And as Phyllis Tickle and many folks have said, every generation kind of needs its new, a new reformation, right? That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. And to be truly reforming, to be truly radical requires becoming aware of the misguided attempts at reform in previous centuries. So that requires in a way becoming sort of a default Catholic in the sense of you're always trying to look at the whole picture of how the church has developed and corrected itself over time. So yeah, that's part of my, my journey with respect to coming to appreciate Catholicism, not as a fundamentalist, um, but as somebody who sees um, the church as a continually growing and thinking and discerning body over time, that it's not a fixed thing, but um, a, ongoing tradition of, of debate and uh, learning about how to follow Jesus today. 
the yeah the other lovely metaphor that you, you used is is growing up in the Midwest you you can be um, socialized into thinking that you don't have any accent right so say, yeah. say I mean growing up in Tennessee we right. don't have that problem but you know yeah. right I mean in so much of the United States especially there is this desire to grasp at being neutral um, of of looking at conflicts and saying. I stand above those conflicts. I am neutral in them. So people look at, you know, white supremacists and Nazis marching in 2016, and some are tempted to say, well, there's fine people on both sides or Mm -hmm. in the presence of Black Lives Matter, it sounds too partisan. So people try to say, well, no, all lives matter. Um, Or in the presence of church disputes and divisions, people want to say, well, I don't take sides in those. I just follow Jesus. Intriguingly, Paul actually said, you guys are mistaken when you try to even take the side of Jesus in that, because you are pretending to be neutral in this. You are, um, you know, some say I follow Cephas, some say Paul, Apollos, or some even say I just follow Jesus. But all of these are sort of mistaken because the church is a movement. It's, it's a body of people. And to be a Christian means that you try to in a way, become a part of uh, that ongoing dispute and not break off from it. Um, so I don't think the attempts at saying I'm just non-denominational is an escape from those disputes. Mm-hmm. Usually, if people say they're non-denominational, they, it's just a way of avoiding saying that they're Protestant evangelicals. Yeah, and I, I heard uh, Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter. You know, she she's actually become a friend. I have so much respect for what she's doing, and uh, she recently put on social media. She was challenging the colorblind uh, idea, right? Because yeah. um, people doing really terrible policies are using her dad. Uh, you know, to say you know his his line that we should look at people for the, the, you know, the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And she mm. said, uh, he was a, a drum major for a just society, not for a colorblind society, you know? And I think a lot of that is recognizing that we, we, we do have a world where God's made, you know, culture and language and people and our systems discriminate because of that. So we can't be colorblind. We need to see the world in color and advocate, you know, in a way that everyone's dignity is affirmed. So that's good. I I, I, um, I think for a, a lot of folks too, you know, they, they might be familiar with uh, the book we did together, um, the, uh, Jesus for President, which somebody asked me how I feel about that. And I said, man, we could have written it yesterday and there's some things that I would just underline and highlight <laughs> Put yeah. a, big, a big asterisk by, but uh, how do you, you know, as you, as you're looking back, how long ago that was, you know, a, a bunch of years ago, 13 years ago that we wrote Jesus for president together. And Chris and I had a, you know, big team of, of other designers and friends that we were working with, but the content itself came out of our own personal quests and our communities to try to, be faithful to Jesus and to this peculiar kingdom uh, that our citizenship is in heaven. You know, our ultimate allegiance is not to any political candidate or party, but we've kind of put all our chips in with Jesus. And that's what we were writing about with Jesus for president. And what, what are some things as you, you know, flip back through that, that you, you think we, we, we might say even a little stronger now or things you might say differently? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the 
realities that we have to come to grips with is that the gospel, as Jesus preached it, and as he said to his disciples, it will cause division in the world. And um, coming to terms with that, Jesus even said, when I send you out, um, people will hate you for this. Mm. And I find that in the United States, a lot of Christians engaged in sort of culture war and the right-left dispute have come to regard that um, if they are ever being critiqued or opposed, they, they see it as confirmation that they are the persecuted righteous. And mm -hmm. that um, if, if people dislike your position, it must just prove that you're a good Christian. Um, I find all of this is quite a, a, a victim's complex, a sort of scapegoating complex of where people feel justified if they are being criticized. But I find that to become a more mature participant in our pluralistic society where there is debate and division, we can't play that victim's complex for one. Um, and we also have to be aware of the fact that um, any attempts at this sort of all lives matter kind of neutrality are temptations that Martin Luther King Jr. called the white moderate. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really emphasize how much our Jesus for President message was really substantially sort of navigated by Martin Luther King Jr. already when he was trying to criticize the white moderate. Much of the white moderate is the person who says, hey, we don't want to be divisive. We don't want to cause conflict. They might even say, we need to find a third way between our partisanism. Like, can't we all just get along? But learning how to embrace agonism, in other words, the struggle that there is going to be conflict as we try to adjudicate our problems. That would be something that I would hmm. emphasize. And that involves some amount of agonism in the political and legal sphere. We often emphasize a lot of the church acting as the church, talking about the Amish, talking about nonviolent movements outside of politics. But part of MLK's movement was to obtain legal changes. And you know, we weren't total anarchists in that book, but we didn't give too much attention to people transforming um, even laws. Um, we may have said it in the book, but, you know, you can't change a lyncher's heart with lynching laws, but you might decrease lynchings a little bit. Yeah, Dr. And, Dr. Um, Dr. King saying uh, uh, a law won't make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I'm glad we never went into a full anarchist, like anti-participation in the system movement. But I would have kind of gotten a little bit more dirty about how some people can be trying to uh, change laws. And that can actually still have its valid role. Yeah. Well, uh, in case you're joining, we're talking to Christopher Haw, who is a dear friend of mine. We wrote Jesus for President together. He's done uh, his own book from uh, Willow Creek to Sacred Hearts, teaching at the University of Scranton. And you wrote another book recently that is 
highly esteemed. Came out, didn't it come from Cambridge Press? So, yes, um, Cambridge University. Uh, this, this is a big deal. It's one of those like really big uh, academic books, which is awesome. I think you'll have to say the title because I might get it wrong, Chris. <laughs> it's titled Monotheism, Intolerance, and the Path to Pluralistic Politics. Boom. So put that in your pipe. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that's, but it's, it's awesome. Like one of the things I love about you is how seriously, you know, the, 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 the passage, love God with your mind, you know, your in your body and your all every, every, everything. But you know, you're, when I wrote, um, executing grace, y'all, I, uh, I had a chapter that was wrestling with some of the implications of atonement theory. And, you know, uh, <laughs> the whole chapter on Jesus, I, I passed to Chris to be like, Hey man, can you take a look at this and tell me, give me some feedback. And, and he gave me a grade. I think it was originally like, it was rough, man. It was like a B minus or C I think. So I finally got it up to an A minus or maybe an A, I don't know. But, uh, but I, you, you've been really uh, wonderful at introducing us to, some of the academic and more intellectual voices in the church that maybe some folks don't know. I know when you were um, out in Philly, we did a, a, a book club together, a study on um, your book, but we did James Allison and Rene Girard. And you've, uh, um, for some folks, we might need a little intro to Girard. And I, I wanted to spend the last little segment of the show talking about Rene Girard because his ideas, you, you're one of the kind of premier scholars of Girard. You also are one of the best interpreters to folks <laughs> that don't have letters after their names. So yeah, give, give folks a little intro to Girard, but also why you think he's so important for us to pay attention to. Great. Well, Rene Girard died in 2015 as a um, interdisciplinary academic in the sense that he spanned um, studies in some of the great novels in literary criticism, like studying Dostoevsky and Proust and Shakespeare. But he also um, went into anthropological studies on human evolution and studies on sacrifice and how humans evolved uh, into the species that we are. And he also delved into um, interpreting the Bible through the lens of anthropology and through uh, that lens of human evolution, um, kind of raising a, a much more fresh and creative way of talking about Christianity in relation to you know, the last few million years of human evolution. And lastly, he also um, delved into lots of social theory and political analysis on how to read conflict in our world, such that political scientists use him and even neuroscientists and psychologists have really drawn upon him um, in trying to interpret how and why we end up uh, acting the way we do, acting in violence, and so the centerpiece of his work really refers to us as being imitative creatures. Um, so that's sometimes why his theory is called mimetic theory. Mimetic simply means that we imitate one another unconsciously. And so that notion that we are unconsciously imitative, it flies in the face of our intuitive impressions of ourself, which is I am my own rational being, like I choose what I want to do. I, I want things because I want them. But mimetic theory um, in engaging psychology and neuroscience 
basically tries to point out that you want things because other people want them. Um, you desire things through the desires of other people. Now, this gets very interesting in talking even about how we interpret the Trinity. That's much deeper and longer down the line, which is Jesus had a healthy psychology that he didn't understand himself as himself. But he said, everything I do is imitation of the Father. Or one person said, when Christ looked inward, he saw nothing but the Father's love. So anyway, Gerard's theory really um, centers that notion of imitation and suggests that we have to learn to interpret our long human evolution as a sort of wild, even error-filled um, chaos that centered around how our imitation became distorted and channeled through scapegoating. Because when we imitate one another so much, it can really escalate, it can create riots, it can create <laughs> capital storming, you know, like we saw on January 6th. Lynch the, the, the whole everything around the masks, right? I'm not going to wear masks, or I am going to wear masks, and there's this mob mentality, right? But we even see yeah. it in in Jesus as he's, be, I mean, in the crucifixion, you know, as this, there's kind of this uh, group of folks that it feels like there's that old saying like never underestimate the danger of of a person with a large group with them you know like they like a person that and we have like a lot of that imitation so it, it does bring new new beauty beauty to the idea of being imitators of Christ um and trying to live our lives like with that as our moral compass and sounding board and we've just got five minutes left or so of the show bro and i mean we'll, we'll have you back on but i wanted to you know as i, I mentioned the death penalty book the other thing that you've that, that's really just a gem of renee gerard is how he helps us understand why jesus died right and his scapegoating uh the theory and um there's some versions of theology that kind of have god pointing a gun at humanity and then taking it off of us and pointing at Jesus and God killing Jesus right. um, so that we don't have to die. And they can, you know, make kind of a monster out of God. And as, as I've heard you explain, Gerard's idea was sort of that Christ is the end of the sacrificial system, or he's kind of, you know, like water poured on the electric chair to kind of short circuit it. And mm -hmm. um, some few people have said, you know, it's the, the end of the sacrificial system, but you you kind of say he was blowing it up and you talk about the fact that the sacrificial system was more for us to find a way to kind of reconcile our sins and have a way to atone for it. And sort of, and so Jesus kind of as the lamb of God is the final sacrifice, but give us a little bit more Gerard, man, especially on that. Cause it seems like we need some help understanding the mystery of why Jesus died. Right. Well, in many ways, what has been, as Gerard and uh, in quoting Jesus said, what's been hidden to us since the foundation of the world is that the bases and, and the hidden foundations of human culture are in that mob imitation, that mentality that creates a lynching and then derives a sense of order and togetherness out of that. And the Gospels even try to address this by noting that Herod and Pilate became friends the day that they uh, crucified Jesus. What brought that group together is a blind imitation of one another into a snowballing that we call lynching. And 
Jesus, upon looking at that, said, God, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. And what they're doing is not um, sort of unwittingly offering up a sacrifice to the God who wants someone to die. We are, in a way, the violent deities that want blood. And in fact, we find in Christ someone who is so not animated by death and sacrifice, so animated only by life, that we have no room for him in the end. We have no room for a truly human person not animated by death. And it's, so it's us that cast him out. And so this, in a way, is like a photographic negative to sacrifice. Um, this shows us a different way of engaging with violence, not sacrificing others for our sake, but learning how to be self-sacrificial. And that is the manner of God's unconditional love. Hmm. There's so much more to say on it, but that's just the briefest way of introducing it. Yeah, talking just a little bit uh, about Rene Girard with Chris Haw, Dr. Chris Haw here. And um, we've got just a minute left. You got you tell people how they can follow you and continue to check out your stuff, Chris. Well, I have a um, very underutilized website, chris-haw.com. <laughs> um, there's some Chris Haw com in the world. I don't know who he is. I have to find him out. So chris-haw.com. That's where I've kind of posted uh, the books that I've done and the articles that I've been working on. I'm definitely more in the uh, sort of slow academic form of writing where I'm really sort of taking my time. I'm not on Twitter and Facebook, but I definitely am always trying to um, do that sort of slow thinking that helps us grow in um, a greater understanding of the Gospels. And if you're going to uh, get, uh, recommend one book by Rene Girard, what would it be? Introduction would be I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, but for those with a long attention span, I, um, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. How about that? So check out Rene Girard, y'all, and keep in touch with Chris Hall. We like old school mail. You can find it at redletterchristians.org. Send us a letter or an email. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll have Chris back. He's awesome. And uh, you are too. So thank you all for joining us. This is Shane Claiborne, and the name of the show is Across the Pond. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.